we're back. This is the LMN Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Sandberg. Thanks so much for being here with us for episode number two, and we've got a good one for you today. Our guest is a play-by-play announcer, a radio host, a writer, and a podcaster. You can hear him right now as the voice of the Ridgefield Raptors baseball team in the West Coast League, and we're going to talk about his new audio documentary series, Dynasty in the Woods. We've got Josh Warden joining us on the podcast. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Enjoying Southern Washington here and looking forward to reminiscing about OSU days and talking about what's going on now. So thanks for chatting. No, it's great to have you here, Josh. Uh, It's always good to catch up with you because your career has taken you to so many awesome places. Uh, And you mentioned uh, you are in Washington right now. You're calling games for the Ridgefield Raptors. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but you've got a game tonight, correct? Like you're, you're prepping for a game as we speak. Exactly. Yeah. Game two against the Portland Pickles. I had a fun game last night, probably the most dramatic game of the season so far. It's a young season, just four games in, but uh, the Raptors are undefeated, only 4-0 team in the league right now. So they'll try to go to 5-0 tonight. That's awesome. I'm excited to talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. The first thing I want to do uh, is offer you congratulations because I've been listening to your audio documentary series, Dynasty in the Woods. Uh, It is fantastic Uh, for all of our listeners. Go check it out on iTunes right now. Uh, And it's still going, still being released. But uh, tell us a little bit about what Dynasty in the Woods is uh, and how that came about. Yeah, I appreciate it. So Dynasty in the Woods is basically a podcast series. I call it a a documentary series because it kind of highlights that it's more than, you know, I also have like a conversational podcast, which is just an interview style, which is great. But the documentary style, which involves, you know, splicing up the clips, adding music, a script, it's much more (laughs) involved in terms of the work that puts into it. And I think the overall product on the back end, but um, it covers Oregon State baseball, and in particular the 2018 season when the Beavers made it all the way through the College World Series and won the national championship three years ago. Um, and initially, it was going to be a project just about that final series against Arkansas. Uh, most fans, even if they're not huge Beaver baseball fans, kind of remember, oh, they played Arkansas or the foul ball on the first base side. They might remember that scene. And initially, I was just going to interview a few players in that series and kind of do a one or two episode recap of what happened and get a few thoughts here and go to that guy and just, you know, an episode or two on that. And then I kept on getting more and more interviews and ended up being an 18 episode series on the history of the program, uh, the, the coaches over the years, how the program was nearly disbanded back in the 80s under the previous coach, Pat Casey and his legendary career, and then maybe my favorite part of it was a, a two-part uh, sub-series in the middle, the episodes that just came out, number five and number six, that delve into the mental game, the kind of meditation practices the players would do, the visualization, and a lot of topics that kind of transcend baseball that I think will really hook people in, even if they're not baseball fans. I considered even putting them first at the beginning, and maybe I should have because really you don't have to be a baseball fan to be inspired by that and even me who I don't play baseball anymore but it made an impact on me as a person just from a philosophical standpoint so um, to see the the concepts and the the real psychological uh, improvement and benefit that um, 
that that played for the baseball players really shows how sports can transcend and how uh, you can learn a lot from a team like like Oregon State and what they were able to do. So it's been fun to have it come out and hear people talk about it and having listened to it. And so it's it's been a lot of fun. Well, you mentioned the genesis of the podcast there. Uh, what was it like going from your podcast, Beaver Tales, which was a more interview-based, kind of one-on-one, to suddenly the production of an 18-part series? I mean, mentally, how did you have to make that switch? And what was that transition like to, to this much bigger project? Yeah, it's a completely different framework. Initially, with the interview-based one, you kind of know what you're got to do to prepare for it. You, you line up the guest, you know, get someone to commit to it, set a date, prepare some questions, record the interview, do a little editing on the back end, and that's it. There, there you go. With the Dynasty in the Woods project, it, it's, it's completely changed. Now it's booking interviews, still preparing questions, figuring out where those interview questions are going to lead, what answers they give, and then editing back their answers into you know 5, 10, maybe 15 second clips, then choosing where in the documentary they'll go. They may give one answer in a question where I use that audio in episode two, and then the latter half of that question relates to something I'll talk about in episode 11. So <laughs> cutting that up and then saying, all right, this is episode 11, that's episode four, I think I'll use that clip in that episode, I'm gonna cut that part and not use that. And then, you know, labeling those clips, writing down in the script. I think the script ended up being something like 100,000 words just in terms of oh my God. Um, what, what the exposition was, the things I'm saying, the labels of what clips are being used, little notes on there. And so it, it was basically, it's kind of like writing a book. I mean, you, in, in writing a nonfiction book, let's say, I mean, you got your exposition where the narrator, the author is writing, and then you got the quotes, you got the research, and just instead of having the quotes written down it's just you actually hear the people themselves talking and more cinematic with the music underneath and some pauses to set the scene and the radio announcing of mike parker so i tried to really utilize what a book cannot do in the more cinematic elements but it is kind of structured like a book would be um so yeah a lot more involved um it was fun to see how things i had done in my past to help prepare me for a project like this so when I was in high school, I did what's called DVD yearbook. There aren't all that many high schools that do this around the country, but Corvallis High School was one of them where they had a video yearbook section where we had just a few students who joined in and I was the executive producer and I would do a lot of sports highlights. I'd do some other interviews and do a lot of video editing just on Final Cut Pro. And so to kind of get familiar with editing, putting together clips one after the other, kind of having a a vision, a, a determining factor of, okay, here's what I'm going to put first and second. I'm going to put that clip here. Started to get my mind formulated of, okay, I kind of know how to direct something like this. And so as a one-man crew for the Dynasty in the Woods podcast, that that helped a lot, just having a, a sort of vision of how to piece it together and how to write. The barometer helped a lot because my, my writing skills, my storytelling ability to you know think of a story, know how to frame it, what to start with, what the, you know, pieces of evidence to use later on, the quotes. Um, so all that coming together and, and using all those skills in one project was was uh, pretty cathartic. I'm glad you brought up the writing part of it because uh, you were and are a tremendous writer. And I always enjoyed reading your articles when you were at the Daily Barometer here at OSU. When you were putting Dynasty in the Woods together, 
how much did the writing help? And did you write everything before you recorded or were you getting into the recording process, realizing that some things maybe fit in different spots and had to go back and rewrite? Yeah, that's a good question. I did write everything down, everything, every clip, where it was going to be, everything I was going to say. Um, During the podcast, you'll hear my voice about maybe 50% of the time and you hear the clips 50%. I tried to keep my voice as little as possible, but just enough to transition from one clip to the next, set the scene, explain what's going on, and then let the players and the coaches and the media members speak for themselves. Um, But I wrote everything down and then it was a process of recording it in such a way that sounded genuine, sounded authentic, not just reading off a paper that's very robotic. But the the writing, to to touch on what you're talking about, it helped so much. I mean, at the barometer writing for four years there helped me so much in terms of just knowing what part of a story is the story, you know, the thing that's going to bring you in, the, the first sentence that says, oh, okay, this is an interesting article. I do want to keep on reading here and knowing how to, to frame it going forward of, okay, what would lead from here? What's the next point that kind of builds on that? And just knowing how to ask questions, the interviewing side of it, to actually gain information that's going to tell people a story they didn't previously know. <laughs> when I when I first started at the Barometer, I would only write articles where I already knew what the story was and then I would just ask questions that would give quotes that kind of supported what I already knew and then I realized wait no I've got the opportunity to interview athletes I can ask them questions where I learned something I genuinely didn't know so let me ask insightful questions and write a story where I've got the the inside look that not everybody has access to these players so asking more pointed questions asking questions where I don't know the answer just to see hey is there a story here and maybe there is maybe there isn't and so writing for the barometer for four years just completely changed the, the storytelling element. And even if I don't work for a newspaper long term, I'm still very grateful that I spent four years at the barometer. Now, with Dynasty in the Woods, with this series, you've obviously followed and covered the Beavers for years. You knew a lot about that particular team in 2018 and about kind of the team and its history. So when you went through this process and had a chance to interview players and coaches and other members of the organization, were there things that you learned that was new in this process? Was there anything that surprised you as you did these interviews? Yeah, a ton of stuff. It's it's pretty fun to see just how many storylines there were. That, that's why it ended up being 18 episodes long. I thought it was going to be like a couple episodes. And then there's just so much content, so many interviews, so much audio. I kept on thinking, oh, shoot, now I got to expand it to seven episodes. Oh, now it's got to be eight. And I had enough content to do it, but I didn't want to make it too long because I figured people would see 18 episodes. I don't want to listen to 18 episodes. And honestly, maybe they don't. And I would understand <laughs> if anyone is is too blown away by that. I get it. But I just couldn't help myself from saying the, these are so good. I enjoy this. I'm going to put it out there. And if people want to listen, then great. And if they don't, I get it. But I, I had the content to to make it and hey people watch you know 23 episode seasons of tv shows so maybe they'll <laughs> maybe they'll go along for 18 but yeah there was so much stuff that the mental game stuff that was from an interview i had no idea that the team was in did any sort of mental game approach and at the time i didn't even really know what the quote-unquote mental game was necessarily but in maybe the sixth or seventh interview i had done um with one of the players he was like the sixth or seventh player i'd interviewed 
And he made some offhand comment about meditating in his pro career. And I asked him if he had done that at Oregon State. And he said, oh, it was a huge deal. And I followed up with a few questions about that and then went back when I interviewed other players. I asked them about it. And it turned out to be one of the biggest storylines of the whole podcast. And I only knew that because of one offhand comment from like the fifth interview I had done. And so that was just from a conversation and just took follow-up questions. It was, oh, wait, tell me more about that. And I didn't know anything to begin with. It just took, hey, explain that to me. I don't know what you're talking about, so help me out. Like, explain it to me like I'm a fifth grader sort of thing. And went from there and, and started to ask more insightful questions once I had a knowledge base to begin with. But that would be one example. And lots of other stories of things that happened behind the scenes, locker room stories, the the Washington game where they had a four-hour rain delay and just hearing about the players goofing around, playing mafia in the locker room, but then coming out and just dominating Washington when they were losing during that whole rain delay and came out and flipped the whole season around after that. So um, yeah, tons of stuff that just came out in the interviews. When you sit down with a guy for 45 minutes, you'll usually uh, uncover some stuff you didn't know. How many people did you end up interviewing for this project? I think it was uh, 56 people and including like times where I interviewed them twice. It was like 68 interviews, I think, but it was 56 people in total. Wow. How many of those uh, interviews or how much of those interviews ended up in the series or, or how much was left on the cutting room floor? I I used at least a little bit from every interview some of them it was gold and i was using almost every clip they had and and a couple interviews was like oh okay this you know is a couple clips or i wouldn't use as much it, i definitely operated from the standpoint of okay is this clip actually going to improve the documentary and make it better does this project need this clip if not i'm cutting it because i don't need to just worthlessly extend this podcast more than it needs to be but if it's good i'll use it and if it makes it super long then that's okay so it, it depended but yeah I, I tended to use a lot of stuff and that's that's how we got to 18 episodes so with those dozens of interviews who was the most difficult to get a hold of Ooh, um that's a good question. Because yeah, you've got you've got players and coaches that have you know scattered across the country and across the world in the years since that since that game. So what did you have to do, and, and who was who was the most challenging to try to reach and get an interview with? Right. Yeah. Luckily, a lot of them are pretty easy. Um, when I started, I had one phone number, only one guy that I interviewed. I had I already had contact info with, and it was Kyle Noback, who was the starting left fielder. And he, luckily enough, is the one guy I, you know, I interviewed and had the number of. He is like kind of the hub of the team. Like he'll just say, oh, let me connect you with that guy. Let me connect you with that guy. And so typically the guys would respond pretty quick. Um, Pat Casey took a little bit of work. I had to go through an SID and then interviewed his son who's on the team. And then his son connected me with Pat. And then Pat said yes, but he's not the most technologically advanced. So it was... You know, a lot of them I just do it on Zoom because this was in the height of the pandemic. But him, I did on phone first, and then later did it in person. Actually, and you track um, him down on top of a mountain somewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that was Kevin Abel. Took a little work, but tracked him down eventually. Um, unfortunately, was never able to get a hold of Adley, Rutchman, um, a couple other guys. But mostly, it wasn't too hard. They were pretty nice guys, and, and was able to get a hold of them. And did you find that folks were pretty willing to reminisce about that year now that we're about three years out? Yeah, that that's one of the things I liked about doing 
the Where Are They Now style podcast with Beaver Tales and then with Dynasty in the Woods about a team that, you know, former players, a lot of them have since retired from baseball or some of them still playing, but it's hardest when guys are right in the middle of their career to interview them because everybody wants to interview them. I love doing the stories where, hey, there's not 10 guys asking to interview this this dude, so I can get him more easily and then sit down and chat for a long time and ask really deep questions. The tough part is getting someone who's still relevant because you could interview someone who played 30 years ago and nobody wants to interview him because nobody wants to listen to him. That can happen, but with this team, it was the perfect blend of hey, nobody's really interviewing them necessarily, or not that many people, but it's still a really interesting story because they won the national championship a few years ago, and there's still a lot of stories to uncover or just stories to relive, the games to recap and, and experience them in a new way. And so that was that was kind of a fun way to do it. Is this something that you would want to try to do again in the future? Maybe not necessarily on this level of an 18-part series, but an audio documentary, audio storytelling in that sense. Is this something that you would want to try again in the future? I I, I would consider it. When I started the project, it was actually supposed to be a four-part series where the baseball team was just one part of four. I was going to do an episode or like a couple episodes on the 2015 men's basketball season there's going to be one reliving the 2016 football game against Oregon when Oregon State beat the Ducks for the first time since 07 and then another one reliving the 07 football game against Oregon and I had already started doing interviews I'd started writing the script I made the most progress on the basketball one it was actually pretty far along in that one before really honing in on the baseball one realizing okay I'm getting the most interviews on this one I'm going to focus on it and then I ended up spending took me a whole year I I released it on the anniversary of the day I started the project so I don't know if I'll go back and finish the the Oregon State basketball or football ones I also kind of have an inkling of maybe be good to expand and do something beyond just here's an Oregon State memory from the past let's relive it that was cool but there's a lot more stories to tell in the world and things that deserve to be told so it's cool to see how the industry has developed. I mean, I've only scratching the surface here, but there are a lot of somewhat similar projects when you look through, if you just open up Apple Podcasts, there's tons of like, quote unquote, documentary style podcasts, whether it's ESPN doing their 30 for 30 podcasts, or it's stuff by like Pushkin or like the Malcolm Gladwell stuff, revisionist history, or the Laura Beale stuff, or like the true crime podcast. I mean, whatever you're into, there's a lot in that industry and so it's still storytelling it's interviewing it's retelling of stories and so whether my career would take me down that path I don't know I like the play-by-play route for now but I've really enjoyed the project with Dynasty in the Woods and I'm sure it'll play some sort of role whether in terms of skill set and play-by-play or actually doing a project more like that again in the future. Let's take a break we're going to be talking play-by-play with Josh Ward and more coming up after this. Hey, we're back. We're talking with Josh Warden. Uh, he is the play-by-play announcer for the Ridgefield Raptors of the West Coast League. Uh, you've got a game tonight. Uh, how do you prepare for a baseball game as a play-by-play announcer? What sort of things do you have to do to get ready for that? Yeah, I think, gosh, there's, there's a lot of stuff, and I'm still kind of getting in the rhythm of it with this being my first season of like full summer, collegiate summer baseball league. But I start out with just trying to identify what are the most important storylines. What is like the two or three things, or maybe even just one thing that if the listener tunes in for five minutes, 
or any part of the game, I hope that they get this. And it might be something sim simple like, hey, Ridgefield's on a four-game winning streak. They're going for their fifth win. That, that might be the most compelling thing with Collegiate Summer League. It's sort of a, I don't want to say chill league, but it's, it's not like the World Series here where there's 20,000 fans. It's players trying to get experience, enjoying the summer, fans coming out for a good time. So it might not be anything you know, super dramatic, but something along those lines. And and so identifying that, making sure that's at the top of my mind, that I'm kind of repeating that every once in a while. And then once I've got that solidified, I know that I've got that squared away, maybe written at the top of my scorecard or wherever's good, then starting to get into the filler stuff. And I, I like to be over-prepared. I want to have three, four, five notes on every player. So when they're coming up to bat, I can tell some story about them. I can wax poetic about their background or their family or how well they've been hitting the last five games. And so that usually comes in. I go to batting practice and just hang around for BP, talk with the guys, chat with them about what they're up to, how they got to the team, how they started playing baseball, who's, you know, who's been watching, do you have any family at the ballpark today, or how's your season, just anything. Yesterday I was talking to the center fielder who's from North Carolina, so I was asking him about how he came to the West Coast, when he's from North Carolina, told me this interesting story about his mom moving to North Carolina to work in NASCAR, and then he moved back to California, he's got family here, and now his parents met, and all that sort of stuff, so it kind of, it's a pyramid style, sort of like the, the pyramid of writing articles where you start with the most important thing and work down and so you know play by play is storytelling so you start with the main thing and then you have filler stuff to prepare for and so um, it takes a lot of formatting I'm still figuring out kind of my spotting board how I want to format it I've tinkered with it as the season's gone along but in terms of the, the notes that's kind of how I start with it. When you told me that you had got the job at Ridgefield I was so excited uh, the West Coast League is a great summer league. Uh, they do a really good job there. And it brought back a lot of memories for me because 12 years ago, I was also a play-by-play -play announcer for uh, a season in the West Coast League. It was with the Spokane Riverhawks, uh, who are not around anymore, but that's okay. Uh, but it was a great experience. And one of the things, uh, one, some of the many things I remember about that time is kind of that intimate feel of working a summer wood bat league like that. You know, you're working uh, with the the great game day production team. Uh, you are going on the road with the players. Uh, you're connecting with those fans. What have you noticed in terms of uh, being a play-by-play -play announcer? Obviously, we're only a week or so into the season so far, but what have you noticed so far about that experience of working in this league and, and working with the team? Yeah, intimate, I think, is, is a good word to use. Like the the players have been really open and easy to talk with and really accessible. Um, you know, they, they seem pretty relaxed. They are playing for a big purpose. Like a lot of these guys are trying to get noticed and use this season to get a scholarship at a D1 program or uh, get more playing time at the school that they're at because their head coaches are watching. They they watch on the, on the live stream. I had a player yesterday talk about, oh, my head coach was watching and he, he commented on my broadcasting to the player who's playing for Ridgefield. So I know the, the coaches are watching, the parents are watching and all that, but the, the accessibility is the big thing. I mean, it, it's so hard to do a broadcast where you only just get 
to walk in and do the game from the stadium, but you never meet any of the players. But now I can go to BP, I can talk with the players before the game, I get to go on the road trips. And so you get to know the players on a personal level. It also makes it more fun to do because the more you want a team to win, <laughs> the more fun it is to broadcast because you're really invested. And to know the players makes it easier to root for them because you see, oh, that guy's really nice. He was really kind to me. Now I want him to get a hit. And then if he does, it's more fun. And if he doesn't, it hurts more. And that's part of sports because you want it to hurt a little bit or be really fun. So, um, yeah, the league is is super great. It's just all over the Pacific Northwest and it's some great venues. Um, and so it's it'll be a lot of fun to broadcast and just tell the stories of, of the players as they go along the season. One of the things that I remember about uh, calling games in a league like the West Coast League, and really this is true for any play-by-play announcer working for a specific team, is finding that balance of that connection with the players and that closeness that you feel but not everything that you talk about with the players is going to go into a broadcast. There, there are some moments and stories, you know, from riding the bus or, or, or hanging out with the players that just don't go in the broadcast. How do you find that balance of, you know, what is a thing that you want to share on the air versus, you know, I don't want to, you know, intrude on on something that really wasn't meant to be shared that way? Yeah, it's a great question because probably the worst thing you could do is finish a broadcast, come back the next day, and then a player comes up to you in pregame the next day and they said, I heard you told that story yesterday. That was not, I told you that in confidence. Like, that was not acceptable. And that sort of thing. That That's like my worst nightmare. Like, that would be so unfortunate. It would ruin the trust. I'd feel terrible. And so I try to be pretty careful with that. Um, there are It's nice when a player says, hey, this is off the record, but dot, dot, dot. You can, you can tell that you've gained their trust and they're telling you something that they know you will not share on the air. Um, it's also sometimes disappointing because sometimes they'll tell you, tell you a story where, oh, wow, I wish I could share that. That'd be really interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to respect the player's wishes and say, hey, if you don't want me to share that, I won't share it on the air. Um, and if there's any kind of gray area, they tell you a story. It's like, oh, I think that's worth sharing. But wait, did they did they want me to share that? I, I wouldn't share it, but unless I ask. And so sometimes I'll just say, hey, can I say that on the air? And yeah, that's a fine clarifying question. And sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, and I'll respect that. So that's always a good way to just follow up and make sure. Um, so that that's the main one is like the stories that are appropriate or not. The other side of it is the stories that are worth telling or not like they're totally appropriate it's not derogatory or incendiary in any way but it might just be unnecessary is the other one I was going back and forth yesterday I was out in the bullpen talking with the pitchers and the the starting pitcher was in there just kind of relaxing a couple hours before the game and was having a a subway sandwich he's like man this subway sandwich is so good it's the best one I've had and I was like what is it he's like a chicken what, what does subway have chicken bacon ranch or whatever it is and he was the starting pitcher and I thought to myself hmm should I mention that on the air? Is that is that worth mentioning? <laughs> and I couldn't decide, and I never really made a firm decision. I was like, ah, maybe I'll mention that, because how many times on the broadcast do you get to hear what the starting pitcher had for lunch? Like, that's something you don't hear every day. But on the other hand, it's like, that's not really that interesting. Like, who really cares what he had? So I was kind of going back and forth. I ended up not saying it. I just kind of didn't think of it. It's probably a weird thing. But I also just kind of like... 
I like telling stories that nobody else is telling. So that sort of thing, you could have a different opinion. Some people would think, that's a why would you ever share that? It's so dumb. Or other people are like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. You knew that? I don't know. I honestly don't know which one would be better. I ended up not saying it. But stories like that, you know, it could be gray area. At least on that part, it's not like inappropriate if I had shared it. I, I even jokingly mentioned, oh, I might say that on the air. And he kind of laughed. So I knew it was, it was fine <laughs> if I did. Um, but those sort of stories, you want to tell the most important stories first. That's like the, hey, I've gotten all the important stuff and I got five seconds to fill because he keeps on fouling balls off or something. But um, the more important one is the, is it appropriate or is it going to offend the player? Those ones you got to be real careful with. Do you find that you have to prep more or differently for baseball than you would for something like football or basketball? Definitely. Yeah, I've noticed that a ton. I, I mean, to a certain degree, I prepare in the same way, but the the ability to use the notes is so different. Uh, even though basketball is probably my favorite sport, baseball arguably is the best one to broadcast because it's so conducive to a broadcasting format, whether TV or radio. In basketball, it's hard for me to listen to basketball. It's hard to broadcast basketball. There's just too much going on. You cannot really capture on a radio broadcast all the elements of what's happening in one game because there's 10 players going and you can't describe it all. In baseball, it's a pretty good tempo. You get the pitch. You can say where it was hit to. You know, A double to left center kind of looks like what you might imagine a double to left center to, to be. And it's so much easier to use the notes you have because if I've got this great story on the right fielder, well, I know when I can use that story. It's when the right fielder comes to bat. Like very simple, like, you know, on a silver platter there for the great anecdote is, hey, here's Caden Connors coming up to bat. And, here, you know, here's this interesting story. And you start talking about Caden Connor. In basketball, I've had so many times where I've had three great nuggets on the starting small forward. But, you know, the game's going on, maybe he makes a basket, but I can't really tell that story because the other team's coming down on offense right away. And maybe if he gets to the free throw line, that'd be a good time to use it. But if he never shoots free throws in that game, then you just don't have time to tell a story. So baseball is just so great. And it makes you need to prepare more because you got to have more stories because there's more times to tell them. Uh, But it's just so perfect. And I know I can actually use the stories I've prepared. So that's been really nice. Now, can I ask you, because I was never good at this as a play-by-play announcer for baseball, how do you tell the pitch that's coming out of the pitcher's hand when they're throwing it? Because all the pitches looked exactly the same to me when I was sitting up in the press box. How do you spot them, Josh? <laughs> uh, there's a couple things. It's a funny question you ask right now because that's I've been working on that. So the the primary thing I would say I did this just yesterday went down to the bullpen and I went to every pitcher I noticed all the pitchers hang around for about a half hour roughly one and a half hours before the game they're just all sitting in the bullpen so I walked down there and I went down the line to every pitcher in the bullpen and I said can you tell me which pitches you throw and any interesting things about those pitches and so I went down to each guy and he would say I throw a four-seam fastball, a slider, and a changeup. And the next guy would say, I throw a two-seam fastball, a curveball, and a changeup. And I might ask a follow-up question like, which one do you feel most comfortable with? Or what's the mile an hour on your fastball? Whatever it may be. So now I know. I wrote that down. All right. When Andrew Trotman comes in, I know he throws a fastball, a slider, and a changeup. And so when I'm watching him, I know I can't say it's a curveball because he doesn't have a curveball. So that was very helpful for one. And it just came straight from the horse's mouth. Like it was them describing their pitches and what they feel most comfortable with the other thing that helped is just 
watching a lot of baseball, knowing the curve, knowing what pitches look like uh, other ones. Um, I, I used to play this video game called MVP Baseball 2005. It was on the GameCube. Yes, with a great soundtrack. Years. Great soundtrack. Very, very uh, punk rock kind of esque. Uh, <laughs> yeah, great game. And it helped me a lot understanding pitches because when playing the game, every pitcher has their own pitch mix and you can throw a splitter, you can throw a four seam, or you can throw a cutter. And it helped me so much realize okay, usually the cutter is about, you know, three to five mile an hour slower than a four seam fastball. It cuts away from a right handed batter, or a splitter has a 12 to six movement, or a curveball, or whatever the slider. Like now I understood every pitch, what it looked like coming out of the hand, when it might be appropriate to use. So all that to say, you kind of get it via experience. I've also heard it said like, hey, if you call that a slider and it's actually a changeup, who's really going to call you on it? <laughs> um, to a degree, that's true. Although I bristle at that a little bit because the whole purpose of a play-by-play guy is to tell you the story. And if I call it a slider and it's not a slider, I've misled you. I've told you the wrong story. So I, I will try not to do that. I can't promise that I'm 100% correct on every single one. Although I will say... Even if nobody can call you out on it because it's radio and they're not going to know that it wasn't a slider, especially if it's a live stream, we do both radio live stream and there's also a YouTube feed. Yesterday when I was in the bullpen and I was getting the players pitch mix, this was before the fourth game. So I'd done a few games where I had not yet asked them what pitches they threw. One of the relievers who had pitched a couple innings said, oh, you called one of my pitches a cutter and it's a slider and his coach had like mentioned it or he had watched it back. And so people will call like will notice it, or at least the players themselves. And so now I know, all right, when Jacob Fried comes in, he's got a slider and not a cutter. So uh, that sort of thing, like people might notice it. And so you, you do want to get it right as close to 100% as possible. But uh, it takes a lot of work. It's not easy. And at the end of the day, if you know, I might call it off speed, if I can't tell, was that a changeup or is that a curveball? Or I might just say the 2-1 pitch outside, and I won't say what pitch it is. It, it's not the end of the world to just not say. But if you can, I, I like the addition of, oh, two-seam fastball on the inside corner. You know, that, that sort of thing adds to the broadcast, makes you sound smart and that sort of thing. So it takes some work, but when you get there, it, it's pretty rewarding. Yeah, it really shows your chops, too. Uh, Josh, as long as I've known you, you've been an excellent play-by-play announcer. When did you first know that you wanted to do play-by-play? I remember being probably maybe a sophomore or junior in high school, and I was a very shy kid. I was pretty reserved. I didn't talk a lot. People always described me as a, um, you know, reserved and didn't have a lot to say, especially in group settings. So it's ironic that I'm in broadcasting now and speaking on the radio and TV and all that. But I remember watching, I think it was an NFL game, and there was a, a review. Someone, you know, team challenged a call and they're reviewing it, replay review. And I don't know what play it was, maybe like a wide receiver catching the ball on the sideline and they're reviewing it. Did he get his foot in or was his foot on the sideline sort of thing? And the broadcasters are talking about it. And as they're showing the replay, I, I, I noticed, oh, look, he, he's bobbling the ball a little bit as his foot is coming down. And the broadcasters are saying, oh, look at his toe. It looks like he drags it maybe, but maybe he stepped out with the left foot. And I'm noticing the ball moving and I'm saying, yeah, he maybe gotten his foot in, but look at the ball. He's bobbling it until later. And the broadcasters weren't saying it. They didn't notice. And I thought, but look at the, pl- I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at the TV like inside my head, not audibly, but like, <laughs> look at the, like, notice that please. And they weren't noticing it. 
And I thought, okay, if you aren't going to notice it, then I'm going to do that job and I'm going to do that. I'm going to notice it. Yeah, I can be better than these guys. Yeah. So that was the, that was the thing that got me invested. It was the first time in my life where I was, you know, always so reserved and shy. I was like, wait, I have something to say. I need to get this out. And so it finally came back to me. It was the first broadcast I'd done on like a TV format or live video stream was doing some Oregon State volleyball this year where they have replay review and they, on the broadcast, they did a great job. We had a great replay guy who has showed some really snappy replays. And for the first time it was, oh wait, I can now commentate on the replays. I've done a lot of radio where you can't show the replays. You can describe, hey, here's what they're looking at. But in TV, you change from being the voice to tell the audience what's happening on TV. It's directing the audience. Here's what you see. Let me expand on that. Let me acknowledge what's going on and add to it. And so that was really fun to say, oh, here's the replay. Here's what I'm seeing. Oh, her foot was on the sideline or, oh, it, it may have tipped at the net. And so to be able to do what I kind of initially got passionate about uh, was pretty fun. So it, it grew into more than that. I'm, I'm into broadcasting for more reasons than just replay reviews. It's about <laughs> telling stories and, and providing a compelling storyline and capturing the moment. But that was one of the first things is, is noticing, hey, you know, something's interesting, whether it's a replay review or a player who has an interesting background, like just to acknowledge and to know the story when a, when a softball player comes up and she hits a walk-off home run against her former team that happened this year in a Oregon State softball game to tell the story of she hits a home run her former team she walks off the Huskies like you have to know you have to do the research no she used to play for University of Washington and then to capture that in the moment as she's rounding the bases against her former teammates a walk-off home run you know that sort of thing is is the that's the real meat of the stuff that's the that's the good moments when you've got the research a big moment happens and you can just walk right through it uh telling it like it is and capturing it with the loud voice and and that sort of stuff so you were helpful in that too i thank you steven for your help and giving me feedback at osu and all oh, that thank so you it's been a lot of fun no thank you. it was my pleasure i mean i i didn't have to do much josh like you were always <laughs> uh a strong play-by-play announcer and i i really do think that your your writing for the daily barometer helped you as an announcer as well with that storytelling and finding kind of the narrative of what was happening in the game and what was most important. So no, I appreciate your kind words. Uh, you, you were always excellent at, at what you did. <laughs> when did you first get involved with KBVR and how did you first find out about it? I got involved with KBVR even before, uh, like right at the beginning of my freshman year. I think I took a little college visit when I was a senior. I'm from Corvallis, and so I knew about Oregon State, have a long family history from OSU, and, you know, went through, toured it around. This was back when it was in Snell in the the old building over there, and saw the radio station, got to know um, the pro staff there, and Matt Walton, who was the station manager at the time, and uh, I asked about, hey, do you do, you know, football games? Do you do student radio? And they said, yeah, we do. Our guys who did it last year just graduated that was Alex Crawford was the play-by-play guy so they had openings there and we walked in and did the Oregon State Hawaii football game in 2013 and every game that season but that was the first one we did and with Oregon State on the quarter system you don't you know start classes till the end of September and those games start in late August early September so I actually did one or two broadcasts on KBVR before I ever took my first class at OSU <laughs> nice. so it was it was real easy to get involved and everybody was real welcoming it, it worked out great because 
you know, there's so many opportunities with the student radio station, with the barometer. It just started, I got somehow, I don't know how this happened, but they put me on the football beat from day one as a freshman at OSU. And they said, all right, you're, you're one of the two beat reporters of the football team and men's basketball and softball. And so I just walked right in and got involved and they put me on the beat. Um, I'm sure other years, like there's more competition and not everybody gets the spot they do. I, I just kind of got lucky, but usually if you're there and you want to get involved, you'll get to do something that you want to do or make your own way. But yeah, it was, it was really easy to get involved and I'm very thankful for that. And how much did working at KBVR help you, uh, after you graduated college and went on to do more radio and play by play and podcasting? Yeah, a ton. I was just talking to another West Coast League broadcaster who knew he also knew he wanted to do journalism or broadcasting when he was in high school. And so he went to college for that and tried to choose a school with a really good journalism program. He went to University of Ohio, but they, they don't have student radio there or they, they have student radio, but they don't do sports on the student radio. And he said, my biggest regret is going to a school where they didn't have student radio if i could do it all over again i would value that over the journalism department and oregon state is like flipped from that where osu does not technically have a journalism school you can't really you can't major in journalism but all the opportunities i got at kbvr and the barometer i basically majored in journalism even though my degree says digital communication arts i mean my classes aren't you know they weren't play-by-play related or anything but I came away with way more experience and uh, notes and, and knowledge compared to if I just took classes on play-by-play because it's really the experience where you learn from it and I did I should pull up the spreadsheet here because I keep track of how many games let me let me look at how many games it actually was that I did at KBVR I think yesterday was my 245th broadcast overall wow. in my broadcasting career and KBVR, I did 62 games, according to my spreadsheet, in the four years there. Football, basketball, all that. And so that's a, that's a ton. I mean, that your first 50 broadcasts probably are going to be pretty bad. <laughs> Just <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. Or, or not bad, but like on, on the route to becoming good. Sure. And so to, to be able to just do the games, to do Oregon State games on the radio – and to, to have that opportunity was so critical and so helpful and so much fun. Like, even if I didn't get into play-by-play, just, just the experience and the memories of, I got to broadcast Oregon State football. Like, that was memories of a lifetime. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Josh, I am so happy for all your success. Uh, you're doing terrific work. Dynasty in the Woods is an incredible series. Uh, to our listeners, go check it out. Go to iTunes, subscribe, listen uh, to the episodes. Um and uh, as well, good luck this season with Ridgefield. Uh, I'm going to be listening to the games, and I'm excited to see where you go this season as a play-by-play announcer and where where you're going after this. Like, if there's anybody listening to this that works for ESPN, hire Josh okay. Warden right now. You will not <laughs> regret it. Because 10 years from now, I want to see you walk up to Jim Nance and go, hey, remember that replay challenge you did back in the day? You got that wrong, man. Like, he was bobbling the ball. Call him out. He was. He was bobbly the whole time, Jim. You got to notice that. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, thank you so much for being here. All the best. Good luck this season. Let's talk again soon. Thanks so much, Stephen. Appreciate you having me on. All right. For more with Orange Media Network, go to orangemedianetwork.com and subscribe to this podcast here on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time on the OMN Alumni Podcast.